Blog Talk Radio. Try this, Stephen. I don't know if you can hear me. Maybe you can't. 
Um, give me a thumbs up if you can hear me. If you can't, um, then it's 18. Sorry, guys. Just bear... Um, It's Hi, this is Stephen Slate from Freedom Model Personal hey. Instruction and BRI. Please oh. leave a message with full contact details. Okay, I had to. Um, it went through. That was interesting. All right, Stephen. Uh, the number, if you want to, um, I actually was able to dial you from the platform, from Blog Talk Radio, um, if you're ready and able to answer it, we can get you to be in on the show that way. All right, let's try again. The number is 818-475-9211. And um, we do this all the time, so I don't know what's going on. 818-475-9211. Um, or um, we're able to text each other right now. And Oh, there you are. Okay, good. Here we go. Let's see. Hey, Stephen. Stephen? Stephen? Um, or um, we're oh, able to text really each other right now. Stephen? Oh, there you are. Okay, good. Here we go. Hmm. Stephen, can you hear me? Hey, uh, can you hear me? I can hear you now. Very good. Okay, at least we connected. Yay. Right, you're on. And if you want to see, um, like you could, yeah. Hello. Hi, Monica. Yeah. Hi. Are you there? Hello, hello, hello. Anything. I, I, I can't, wonder if you can hear me. I can hear you. Yeah. Oh, that was just terrible. Um, um, are you there? I don't think I've. I am. I can hear you. I can hear you. Uh, are you, are you okay, using your phone? I can't phone? hear you through my phone. Uh, do you have a laptop? I mean, I can hear me coming through, whatever. Where's um, that coming through? Crap. I don't know. It's like I'm playing this off. My, I can hear you on my computer now. Okay. Um, what, what are you talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we can't do it like that because you'll have a delay and it sounds all messed up. Um. There's a way that um, if you hang up, there's a way I can call you on the computer. Uh, let me try this. Um, let me try. Sorry, guys. Just hang in there again. Um, but I have the feeling it's going to go to voicemail. Hello? Hello, can you hear me? Hi, Stephen, are you there? Yeah. Hello. Okay, I can hear you now. Can okay, you hear me? So I did it. I did it through the computer. Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Okay, great. Hang on a second. All right, good. Let me. Um, so turn down the volume. If what are you hearing me through your phone or the computer? All right. Can I? Do I sound all right? Yeah. What What are you going through? The computer or the or your phone? My phone. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, we are with us tonight, um, Stephen Slate, who is the author of The Freedom Model. And um, to escape the uh, treatment and recovery 
industry, and I did give a plug for your Clean Slate Addiction site, and uh, it was a lot of stuff. Uh, Stephen has been uh, did a TED talk on addiction, and he wrote this uh, fantastic book that was really needed, along with Mark Sharon and Michelle Dunbar, who I've had on the show. And I thought, um, you know, individually we could just uh, just talk, you know, about so much stuff. So uh, give us a little, uh, maybe tell us why you wrote this book. Um, well, this book was, you know, just a further extension of the of the work that Mark and Michelle had been doing at the St. Jude Retreat for a few decades. Um, but, you know, they started out in AA and... They um, they they tried to take a different attitude towards things of like, hey, you can get over this, right? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it's not yeah. you're you have to be, you know, you're not diseased. You don't have to be recovering for the rest of your life. But they, but they still believed in a lot of AA stuff, and mm-hmm. they slowly sort of worked their way out of that. So that by the mm-hmm. time I went to their retreat as a person who had spent five years with a heroin problem and going to methadone programs and rehab and 12-step meetings and all of it. Um, and I was just at really, really never getting any help with all that. I ended up at their retreat. And by the time I got there, the, the program was very different from 12-step. And mm-hmm. um, I loved it. It kind of worked instantly for me. And, and um, I was fascinated with that fact that just sort of, changing um, the way I viewed addiction, the way I approached um, quitting, um, made it easy to finally kind of instantly quit. And it, and, and so I wanted wow. to be a Instantly that. quit, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I really do feel like it was instant. And I, this mm-hmm. is a problem I've had over the years is that I struggled and struggled and struggled and then – when I did this other approach, it was like, oh, my God, I know I'm never going to be an addict again. And I got over that. And then I've had so much enthusiasm about it that I just yeah. come out and I'll tell people, it's so easy to quit. And they're like, come on. You know, like, I, it's really <laughs> upsetting to hear. And, yeah. um, but, I, but part of what helped me is people being enthusiastic about saying, like, you've got this, you can do it, and you're mm-hmm. going to be happier doing it. And trust me, it's not, you don't have to trudge along, you know, mm-hmm. feeling like every day is a struggle one day at a time for mm-hmm. the rest of your life. So, mm-hmm. but anyways, so I, I wanted to be involved in that, and, um, and we just pushed the model further and further around the idea of there's, you know, there's no disease of addiction or anything that is compelling you to you. Mm-hmm. There mm-hmm. is the fact that you believe that you need your drug to feel normal, better, happy, to deal with stress, to cope with anxiety and the troubles of life. And, and you get yourself into a position where you feel you really need it for these things, and it's pretty damn magical and um, and that's powerful. A perceived need is as strong 
as a real need, right? You know, comparisons have been made to, you know, a starving mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or a, a man dying of thirst in the desert would pay anything for a, a, a glass of water, right? And that's right. how we get right. for our drugs, you know? Um, but it's only because we believe we need it. So that's, that's the part, you know, that needs to change. It's a very personal thing to do that. And as long as you're under the illusion that you need these drugs, it's very powerful. And, and that illusion will make you do uh, some pretty bad things at times that you're ashamed of and, and that you regret and you feel awful and you hate yourself. I know. I've been uh-huh. there. But then, but then when, you, when you get to a point where you're like, I'd be happier without this stuff, uh, the change happens extremely quickly. So Yeah, um, yeah. It's, I think it's so um, important that this book got written and, uh, and that you have this experience. My experience was with alcohol and pot. And um, I do think that, uh, who is it, um, Zach? Uh, he's a he's a journalist. He posted this thing recently that there were more more like deaths from cocaine and meth like, than than opioids. But they really want to keep pushing the opioid deaths. But I actually I don't want to really go down that that direction now because you have too much stuff that I would like you to tell us about here. Um, I, some of the, there's tools you guys found that. During the, I think it's the onset of the closures in the pandemic last March. You guys started doing um, YouTube videos. Can you tell the listener about those and where they can find them? I mean, it's obviously YouTube, but um, I think oh, it's yeah. for people to know. People love to watch videos right now. Yeah, so they can find them on the Freedom Model Facebook page or the Freedom Model YouTube page. And Here's what happened is, first of all, we've been giving away the book totally for free, the ebook copy for a long time. And oh, then wow. when COVID happened, um, nobody wanted to travel to the retreat. We were just sitting up there, you know. Well, like, yeah. Uh, you know, we had a few people that, that wanted that help and that were sort of local and stuff, but um, – but we were there, and we're like, all right, well, what can we do then to help people? We'll, we'll just go online and start teaching right. the course, lecturing on it like we sort of would in class, although it was more of a, you know, in class it's more of a given and a take when we're yeah. meeting with people and trying to teach them this stuff one-on-one. But we sat down and we lectured. We did a lecture on every chapter in the book. Uh, for 23 days, there's 23 chapters. Well, we might have done a little bit more than that, too. We might have done some of the appendices that are in the book. I don't really remember. And Uh um, people loved it. And a lot of people messaged us and said they quit their drinking or, you know, their drug use just by watching those videos. And um, I don't think Uh our words are magic. And and if you you look at what, you know, it's, and right. if you look at what we teach, it's it's really like, hey, you can do it, and switch your frame from, I've got to battle an addiction and and work real hard, and it's going to be horrible. And we say like, let's switch the frame to, um, what are you getting out of the drugs? 
maybe you don't need them. Maybe you can be happier without them. And um, let's get excited about mm-hmm. that. So, you know, that's all we kind of do. We, we, mm-hmm. There's a lot of, you know, we, we draw that out into a long, a whole bunch of different lessons because people are so confused. But ultimately, that's it. And what we're trying to tap into is what people kind of naturally do on their own. Because as you know, right, we've talked about it before. Most people who get over their addiction never even go to a meeting or a rehab or any kind of formal help. And somehow Mm -hmm. they start to figure out that they don't need to keep drinking or drugging in the same way. And they change it and they feel good about it. And, and when you talk right. to people who've really gotten over it, they're, they're not trudging through each day. Those are the people you see at meetings that are trudging mm-hmm. through each day. The ones that are happy move on with their lives for the most part, right? So That's right. We're just yeah. I mean, those are the statistics, yeah, that I was kind of shocked when I first left AA that most people, you know, got over uh, this kind of stuff on their own, especially they would many – back then they would talk about, like, guys that came back from Vietnam – were using heroin and and addicted to it, yep. right? And then they would come over and, I mean, I knew some guys who, you know, d- continued with it. In my neighborhood, there was a f- just a few of those guys who were older than me. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think, uh, I mean, I could jump to this point. It's like this is in your Chapter 1. I highlighted the recovery society has infected our culture with misinformation about substances and substance use. The misinformation is everywhere in our society. Children are taught in schools and public service announcements. Our news media and entertainment is full of it. We hear it from our friends and family. And it is spread by the institutions charged with helping substance users. All this misinformation distorts how you experience substance use, your desire for substances, and your choices to use substances. And that's really true. It's like this big... My son said it's just it's in the lexicon of our society now. You know, AA has so infested and is ingrained yeah. everywhere. And that, and that when I say AA, you've not mentioned you know that yet, but that ideology um, is so bad that even people who are not in it and these assumptions, like I'll give you an example, I was so angry. I watched Law and Order SVU. And I had stopped watching it during the pandemic because it was too dark. Like, I just thought, I can't watch this. You know, I need to go back in time. And I watched Mad Men. I started with Tiger King, I think, and then I went to Mad Men, right? <laughs> and I had never seen Mad Men. But his sister was like, you got to watch Mad Men. And you know for sure that those writers were not a fan of AA because what happens in that storyline, right? But um, so I turn on like whatever it got released in the fall, and the first one was extremely political, and I and and on top of it, Stephen, he said, "Well, I was I was uh, meeting up with my NA sponsor and go to a 6 a.m. meeting," and I was like, "Are you?" I almost fell off the chair, and I like yelled at the TV <laughs> like I was watching a football game. <laughs> Are you fucking kidding me? Now infiltrated one of my favorite shows that has really taken on AA a couple of times and and twelve step. But anyway, <laughs> it was just like shut up, like stop it. They acted like so that was oh, and they Stephen they made the sponsor. It was like the first episode of this new season, which I think came out in the late fall, 
And to top it off, they made the sponsor like some high-powered lawyer right in New York with a big firm who was vouching for him as his sponsor. And I just wanted mm-hmm. to surf. And I tweeted yeah. this one on SVU, and I said, guys, this shit is 80 years old. Like, it's 80, 80 something years old. And um, But now, the good thing is when I brought up your book in Amazon, uh-huh. I, I brought it up, and then there's these other books that were now published, you know, 10 years ago, 11 years ago when I left AA. And they're different. You know, this one talking about moderation and the abstinence myth. Like, there's other things. Um, yeah. And some people, like, what's his name? Lance Stodes almost didn't write his book, The Sober Truth, which is oh, very, really? very critical. Yeah. He was just going to leave for, you know, years um, at Harvard. And um, and then like, everyone was like, no, no, you have to, you know, you have to write that book. And it's a thin book if you're listening. The Sober Truth is... Just one of those books, man. It's thin and it's like you know, scathing. <laughs> thin. A <Yeah>. thin book. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've read so many books. I can't. <laughs> well, yours is thick. It's like it's bigger than the big book. No. <laughs> yeah, ours is too long. And you know what? Uh, the reason it's so long <laughs> is um, because it. it, it it's a, it's a good and a bad thing, you know. Um, yeah. It used to be very simple uh, that you know you have all these people telling you have you have a disease. You know, I I quit. I I got over my heroin problem almost twenty years ago now, and it, it, nineteen wow. years ago, and wow. um, and there was a very simple script at rehab, and it was you've got a disease. It's an allergy to this drug, and if you ever take mm-hmm. it, you'll lose control. And um, mm-hmm. and you need to come to our meetings and basically pray for a miracle, right? And it's like, and it was <laughs> so, so dumb and simplistic, and right. um, to but it was everywhere. And then to for me to run into somebody that was like, no, you don't have a disease, and you you don't need to be in treatment for life. And and one of the things they showed me at the retreat when I when I went was. Um, this chart that William Miller had made um, where he analyzed the evidence base for all these different types of treatments. And AA was like number 49 on the list or something in terms of evidence and effectiveness. And the top thing on the list might've been motivational interviewing or brief intervention. They were both way higher. And in brief intervention is like a 15 minute, conversation with a doctor that's more effective than (laughs) AA you know and they're like and they were like look so if people are more apt to get over this problem in a 15 minute conversation with a doctor then you don't need to believe that crap they've told you at rehab and and in AA and and so you know that was one of the things that they taught me and it was very it, it was such a breath of fresh air that I was able to open my mind into change. But now over the years, the rhetoric has gotten more complex with all the brain mm-hmm. disease stuff, the trauma, mm-hmm. the underlying conditions. There's, there's now, it, it, it has been a good thing and a bad thing, which is that people tried to move away from AA, but now they've come up with a billion different theories, right? <laughs> and, right, right. And but what all the theories have in common is they each posit a new way in which something is forcing you to drink or drug heavily, and you have no choice. 
you know, they all kind of say that in some way. And so as I've been trying to teach other people um, to let go of the disease model and just figure out what they, what they want in life and, and, um, and move on. um, They've come back at me with more and more complex objections to the idea that they are free to change and have control over themselves. So the book is kind of dealing with every one of those fricking objections. So we, we might take a very simple topic and we turn it into many more pages of a chapter than it needs to be because we're but like, it a, so but it could useful. be a textbook though, you know, eventually for yeah. treating addiction, it could be a textbook used, you know, I think in, in university and uh, well, there is, there have been a couple there's, it's been taught at a few different colleges. It's been part of the curriculum in a few classes in, um, in psychology. Oh, yeah. 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 Just, there were professors that found it and loved it. And they told me that they were, that they were assigning it, which was great. But, um, that's, that's good. Good. You know, I want to tell you, I want to give you like some credit. You were the first person who you and this is before everybody you know on TV and news and in government officials were using the word problematic because there was a time where none of them were, but you were the first person that I heard use the word, and you said problematic drinking, and I went, oh my god, I love that. Like that's what I did. I had problematic drinking, and then I felt like I self-medicated. But you know, even I'm a kind of good example for what you're saying. So even though. I had, in quotes, like underlying issues, right? So I had some abuse. I had, yeah. um, you know, some trauma, sexual assault, like at 16. Um, and I had, you know, kind of a, some tough family stuff as a young kid. And uh, yeah. and yet still, okay, there was no treatment for that. I did not get, and I quit. I just quit because yeah. I was fed, fed up with, I got really, really drunk one more time in Hawaii and I, I thought I was going to have a gastritis attack that brought me in the hospital at 16 when I was really partying heavy. And, um, and you know, uh, I, like, reconnected with my sister who, you know, I, I wasn't. And we talked where she was like, oh, yeah, I really had a problem, but you kind of didn't. Well, my problem, actually, I mean, I did drop out of high school. So, like, something was wrong <laughs> there. But, you know what I mean? I yeah. wasn't like, and I was a smart kid. So, but the, but, but the point that you're making is even somebody like me, who did not get up in the morning and drink alcohol. I, did, I mean, I did smoke pot, but that I even quit on my own too. Like six months before I quit drinking, I said, you know what, this is making me paranoid, and um, I'm going to yeah. quit this. And I would, I would take, cha- I would do it and then try it again, and then not like how I felt, and said, okay, no, that I'm like that. And then I did the same thing with alcohol in Colorado before I wound up in Hawaii. And I'm like 17 years old while I'm experimenting with quitting on my own. Um, yeah. And the point being that even though later in life I did need therapy, I needed help badly with some of the stuff that happened to me, I quit anyway. <laughs> I didn't. Well, that, well, look, this is very important, right? Like, you know, we say that trauma and whatever else causes people to have addictions. And, you know, from a certain perspective, You know, it's kind of true because it's like, well, I've got all this crap going on and I'm self-medicating. But, like, what has to be there for trauma and uh, emotional distress of all sorts 
to sort of be related to drinking or drug use is the idea that self-medicating is effective. And I think you reach right. a point, I've seen yeah. so many people reach this point with drinking where they're like, all right, I'm drinking to take the edge off because I'm angry and then I'm getting angrier when I'm drunk. So uh-huh. Uh-huh. it's not working, you know, and, and, and I think people have those, I, I, I know people have a lot of awakenings like that. And it's like, you can have all the problems in the world, but if you don't believe drinking is going to solve them, you're not going to self-medicate. <laughs> you know, right. and so right, right. Like, and I like what you were saying about about quitting pot and and sort of doing it again, and then like I guess you were maybe reducing your use, and then you had yeah. some, mm-hmm. and then you're like, mm-hmm. oh God, yeah, it's making me paranoid. That I kind of did the same exact thing when I was like 21 with pot. I I was mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, no, this I don't like this feeling anymore, <laughs> and and then you sort of forget that, and then you have some like, oh yeah, yep, I was right, so I'm not gonna, you know. I remember right. where that that changed mm-hmm. for me for a while, and and um and I just woke up to this is not this is not providing what I want, and I think that's the greater. That, that's that's quitting is is saying you know wait a minute this ain't providing what I want to be happier not using it this way that's that's quitting right um, yeah but yeah. I'm not thinking about it like it wasn't like this thing oh I have to quit you know there was no pressure on me like mm-hmm. my friends were like what are you doing and I was like no I'm I'm experimenting with something like and I, I don't even know if I use that word right but I remember saying yeah. you know I feel like uh, the words have really changed. And I'm not going to even go down the word of words right now. But <laughs> that would be a whole other show. <laughs> but yeah. um, just going like, uh, yeah, and I remember dancing at this one little party at a friend's apartment, and I was really naturally high um, from the dancing. And um, everybody else was smoking pot, and they are like, oh, Monica, you want? And I said, no, I'm doing this new thing. I'm trying to get high on, I don't, what, did I, what did I say, on the music, you know? Yeah. And, um, I mean, I'd already oh, tried LSD, you know, but anyway, uh, the thing that I, I, I want to say to you too, like another question here is, um, we maybe will have to do two shows. Uh, yeah. A lot of families, I bet like people call, I mean, I even called you, you know, you guys for help with, you know, some family of mine, um, that are so brainwashed. I mean, I wasn't right anymore, but, uh, that you like, what do you tell families if they have a young person or either a husband or a wife or a, uh, that um, is they believe the stuff with AA, right? What do you say to them? Like, how do you begin that process? Oh, God, that's, that's tough. You know, Michelle does that more, and mm-hmm. Michelle has talked a lot of people out of coming to the retreat because, <laughs> because she'll say... <laughs> You know, she'll she'll say like she'll 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 have parents that call freaking out because they caught the kid with pot or you got caught with cocaine at college or something and it's like okay wait a minute did you do cocaine when you were in college yeah okay did 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 you turn into a total addict over this <laughs> you know like no yeah. okay well like, like calm down for a minute what what actually is going on you know and and she'll try to talk people back to reality on some of this. Right. Um, 
No, <laughs> let them come. Let the kid come, and the kid can yeah. get his first one-on-one experience at a decent place, and go back and spread the word. <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, no, I don't. You know, I don't know. Um, I'm mostly directly working with uh, people that have a problem themselves. I mm-hmm. really dread calls with the family because a lot of times it's like talking to a brick wall. I hate to say it, like yeah, yeah. They, they you know, um, no matter what you say, what a family member seems to want to purchase from you is for mm-hmm. you to manipulate their loved one into mm-hmm. lifelong abstinence. Uh, because they don't want to have any worries at all. That's that's one of the reasons that that um you know, this whole abstinence and loss of control thing lives on. It's because it's very easy for families and the law to police somebody on abstinence. You know, it it, it like to you're you're worried about them, you're trying to control them and make them fly right according to what you think and if you're gonna if they're gonna come home intoxicating and be like how many drinks did you have right like imagine that you're trying to hold somebody to that and you you have to work out how many drinks they've had how often they drink find out if they're sneaking drinks it's a heck of a lot easier for them <laughs> right mm-hmm. to just say no right. drinks whatsoever no, no, right. I don't want to have to worry about it Right, and so that's where families always are when they reach the boiling point of wanting to do something about somebody else's substance use. Is the simplest thing is to just completely abstain, and they like the idea of loss of control because it sets up a, a binary where it's kind of. Like, well, either you drink yourself to death or you swear off all uh, all substances forever. And and they like that because they hope that's going to bring a swift end to the problem where you make somebody feel um, coerced as if they have no choice but to quit, right? That's, right, that's what right. they want. It, and what I do is I try to help people to examine their choices, right, to get a clear um, – understanding of their options and to get a clear understanding of what substances can and cannot do for them and then say, okay, well, let's, you think about which, what's going to make you happiest here, Um, whatever that is, you know, and and I'm not going to try to push you into abstinence or moderation or anything. I'm just going to try to um, facilitate you uh, looking at these options in a different way. And I think a lot of families don't like that. <laughs> they don't want that person to make a choice. They, yeah. they just want them. Yeah, they don't to want to make the, any decisions on their own. Just, just do what they yeah. do in those movies in Hollywood. Um, one of the things that um, was so great uh, as I left was the language of no identity, um, no labeling of calling anyone an addict or alcoholic in Chapter Two. It just starts off here. Uh, do you want recovery? It's in quotes. One of the most important discoveries we've made over the years is that shedding the identity of addict or alcoholic and focusing on creating whatever life you want for yourself is far better than focusing on recovery, which you you already said that in the very beginning, which is so important, 
Um, I think Carl Hart talks about that um, in his, you know, his research. But can you talk about the labeling and, um, you know, when you work one-on-one with somebody, what that what that is like? Yeah. Um, when I work on one-on-one with someone, I well, I like go deep on. Um, I just I just sort of question, you know, all these premises about you, right? That you are out mm-hmm. of control. Mm-hmm. Right, and that there's something wrong with you that makes you need to, you know, take massive amounts of drugs at at any given time. And, <laughs> and like, but... <laughs> Sorry, it just kind of sounds so nuts. When you're not... <laughs> so... But this is what people believe. They, you know, you. But and yeah. I believed it. Like. That uh-huh. there was something wrong and defective about me that I could not feel normal without drugs. So, you know, I start to question those things and I teach them about the fact that most people do get over these problems, right? Over 90% uh-huh. of people get over these problems. And, you know, I don't know. It's, it always ends up being a very individual conversation in a lot of ways. Um, and... Uh, <clears throat> And getting people out of that identity is is actually, it's a matter of sort of like changing the words. And like, you know, for me, sometimes for shorthand, I'll tell people I was a heroin addict. But I I don't really like to say that. You know, Mm -hmm. I'll say there was a time in my life where I really believed I need heroin to feel right. And then I got to a point in my life where I didn't feel that way anymore. And, And that's what it is. I'm not recovering. Um, I just uh, you're not in recovery. Change the way I, I hate feel. That. You're in recovery. You know, oh my god, yeah, that's like a, such an awful. Oh my god, I'm in recovery. It's like no, I'm yeah, not in recovery. Oh my god, that's like a newer thing that people started saying. I think rehab. If you look at the history of it, it's like AA influenced the rehab, and then the rehab started to influence the AA, AA. and yeah. and that was that whole thing and. The part about the labeling that I experienced, say, with Kevin, like really at a very organic level and from interviewing all of you that I met who had written books, you know, um, you hadn't wrote a book yet, but you had your blog and um, whether it was Stanton Peel or Hank Hayes or was the narrative. And it was my narrative, my story, and that if I was to really go back and pretend I was already that I wasn't in AA and that what really was happening with Monica at the time. Yeah. And that you retell your, because we all were so programmed to sit and tell your story and share and identify. And I became like the little teenager who could drag me here and there to talk at high schools and talk here and talk on the radio and whatever that I did. That, mm-hmm. you know, you're trying to fit yourself into this hole here. But when you are working with somebody like you and other people who actually got into becoming, uh, working with people with, you know, problematic drug and alcohol issues, that when you tell that story, like I even said to Kevin, okay, Kevin, like, okay, when did you, like, you know, drink problematically? And when, you know, and, and, and his story was very, very different from mine. And so you could see that he, in fact, didn't have, you know, this problem or that problem. And that you're just, you know, in AA, they want to just lump it all together, or they got to send you to NA then, right? But 
my point being yeah. the narratives that we tell our stories besides the label, I think also uh, is, you know, well, not needs to, but gets changed when you get deprogrammed, you know, if you're in, if you're believing that shit, you know. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, <clears throat> they they want to fit you into a script there. And so one of the things I did in the book, and I did it in my TED Talk as well, was to point out some of the ways you get trained to mm-hmm. think of yourself as an addict or an alcoholic and that there's a lot of incentives to think of yourself that way, right? Mm-hmm. Where, you know, in other words, you get in trouble. I mean, just this is why the, um, you know, let's give people treatment instead of sending them to jail. Dumb mm-hmm. debate. Not um, <laughs> always pisses me off because mm-hmm. you get arrested with drugs, and so and they say, well, you know, if you're if you'll say you have an addiction, then you can just yep. go to rehab, mm-hmm. right? And um, now you're going to be on probation for a while. Drug court, that's a nightmare, right? And yep. you go in yep. there, and you're going to have to have the counselors say something good to you. There's some situations where counselors actually have to sign off on you being done with treatment, right, like for mm-hmm. the court. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, like, I've met people who couldn't get their license back for a long time because the, they wouldn't go to meetings, and the, and the counselor yeah. was saying, you know, you're not really ready, so I'm not going to sign off on this, but you're not done with yeah, treatment. Yeah, they might have yet. been in denial or something, right? You're in denial. Yeah. Poor pilots yeah. through that, yeah. And so you get into that situation, and now you have to, you learn what's up. It's like, oh, okay, I have to say that I have an addiction, first of all, and then right. that means I have to say that I can't control myself, and mm-hmm. I have to, if I use again, um, now I can say that these things triggered me. And, like, outwardly, you have to say all that you have to walk and talk like an addict. And if you're not saying the right things, you're not going to get out of trouble, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. so, like, I, I would point out a lot of things like that where there's incentives to start seeing yourself as an addict or alcoholic and you don't even realize that, um, that that's what you're doing. You know, it's just sort of it, it's just sort of like you you start feeling the fear and and you better say the right things, and so you do, and then you start believing those things, and it becomes a part of you. It's it's a nightmare. the the, the whole The whole system is designed to fit you into one little script, um, right, and it, right? And it becomes very restrictive because now that script also says you're going to struggle and relapse. And all of these things are going to trigger you for the rest of your life, and um, and you're going to need to be in some kind of care for the rest of your life. And that just isn't the reality of addiction when we look at the statistics. No, and it's pretty bad. I have a, a pilot, that a group of pilots, but one of them contacted me. And pilots are now sent forever. Um, if you're flying the whole time you're flying, once you're in the HIMSS program, which is a total separate program, it was created by AA members in the 1970s, still exists. And Mike had, I think we're, Mike and I are going to do a show now because he has nothing to lose, so he's going to really speak out that um, mm-hmm. one false positive. Okay, this guy was not drinking and did, never had a drinking problem. 
And, um, you know, people get drunk and drive and get a DUI who actually don't have drinking problems. There's a lot of them who do something yeah. stupid or they're going through a divorce or they have a huge fight with somebody. And they had a false positive. And there was someone else I was talking to who had this. Uh, and it, 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 like, ruined his career. And they wanted him to go for three months, okay, three months from the beginning. Why three months? Oh. Because they're going to pay a lot of money. Was it Delta or United? I forget which airlines. They all pay a lot of money. Um, they pay that thirty grand. They send them off to these shitty places in Atlanta or North Carolina. And if you don't talk that talk, Stephen, you are fucked, and you are not yeah. going to fly again. It's really bad. And it's the the union, it's the airline, the pilot union, as well as the HIMSS mm-hmm. program that's dominating it. Uh, and one test. And not being able to prove, uh, I can't remember who else. It was somebody really recently, too, besides Mike, uh, a pilot that had a a false positive. Maybe it was somebody in one of the groups. Have you ever, you know, been able to help uh, any professionals who are getting forced in any way? Um, Yeah, we've had a lot of professionals in the program. I don't think any, none come to mind. I know back in the day we used to have a lot of dentists because one of the early people who came to the retreat and became a board member, uh, uh-huh. it's, a, it's a not-for-profit, so we have a board. Right. And this board member was a dentist, and he was involved with the state like early intervention program for dentists. And so, oh, wow. uh-huh. yeah, so he would help a lot of dentists over the years. Uh-huh. Um and, you know, so I know that I've worked with people, but I haven't been with, like, you know, a pilot that needs to come to me to get out of trouble. Uh-huh. I, You know, uh-huh. I haven't had that happen. I know they're under very strict pilots and doctors. Are, they have these very strict programs. Um, and we wouldn't we wouldn't fit that because we're, we're not doing the sort of treatment you have a disease by the book thing. You know, we're doing uh-huh. something different. Uh, right, so, right. So it's not a good program. Yeah. AA, you know, it's like really, it's not like it's a good program that they're being sent to, right? Because there might be a good program that might be like no. a plant on it. Yeah. This is not, these are not good programs. But yeah, it's really, it's, you know, it's like really in my, um, you know, right in my forefront thinking because he just had his hearing and he lost and now he's lost everything. And um, 20 year pilot and $300 oh. an hour and would have to start all over and would have to pretend and go to AA. and It's just awful. But um, what, so you wrote the book. Now, how did you write a book with three people? I mean, how did it come together? It was such a, a labor. Um, <laughs> we wrote, me and Mark wrote thousands of pages and Michelle would go in and edit and, uh, and advise oh, wow. us on it. And then at some mm-hmm. point, like, we kept writing stuff, throwing it out, writing it, throwing it out. And then um, and then at some point I go, okay, you know, it's kind of like all this writing we did worked the ideas out. And I was like, we can't write it as um, – we can't write a piece back and forth together. I'm going to sit down and rewrite everything. <laughs> and And – we're not going to do the back and forth editing problem. I'm going to write it all and then give it to you. Now, there is, that's not to say that he didn't write anything. He wrote, he and Michelle wrote all this stuff in the 
sort of process of generating it. But I said, like, right, let's right. fit it together. This I gotta, and so you know, so ultimately I wrote most of it, the words, but the right, ideas, right. you know, start from what Mark's work was there for twenty something years before we wrote this, and right. um, and M- M- Michelle's work there, you know, so it's all sort of coming from them in a way. And, well, that's uh, kind of so cool. I, I mean, that's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I'm looking through, let's see. Uh, let's talk about something that is a question that people have with withdrawal, right? Yeah. Is real withdrawal with alcohol. And you want to talk on that topic of opioids, which I think there are a lot of misconceptions nowadays about that. So can you just address if someone is drinking um, a bottle of gin, a day, getting up in the morning, drinking gin like that, oh, or someone taking um, benzodiazepines like that, or, you know, abusing, overusing them, and then a heroin user who's using, if they can get their hands on that. That's all you hear about is opioids and the pills these days. But anyway, <laughs> fentanyl, here, let's talk about the real drug of heroin. But um, yeah. So will you just uh, educate the listener about the two things? Well, um, yeah. Well, okay, so with alcohol, benzos, and opioids, or just alcohol and benzos? (laughs) Wait. Um, So basically, um, any – so these drugs hit receptors that control a whole bunch of other functions of your body and your nervous system with your heart rate, uh, your temperature, your digestion, all sorts of stuff. And um, basically – your um if you start pouring alcohol into your body all day every day it compensates for the presence of that alcohol and it slows down or it speeds up the production of some neurotransmitters that are that are being uh that are being suppressed by the alcohol right and so then when you take uh-huh. the alcohol up out all of those neurotransmitters are firing like crazy because they're ex- Expecting to be suppressed by more alcohol, mm-hmm. right? But you stop taking mm-hmm. alcohol, so now everything goes haywire, and this is where you can end up, you know, having problems uh, with your body in every kind of way. This is where all those nasty withdrawal sim- sim- symptoms come from, and with alcohol and benzodiazepines at the extreme levels, that can mean seizures that mm-hmm. kill you. Mm-hmm. Now it, there's heroin withdrawal. It screws with you. It causes pain. It causes diarrhea. It causes um, hot and cold sweats and runny nose and all this kind of flu symptoms. But it can't kill you. Um, right. It can. There's. There are some cases of people who died while going through withdrawal, and it's usually because they are. Pe- sometimes it's somebody who is emaciated, has also had an eating disorder, somebody who has other conditions that have them on the verge of death, like Billie Holiday was when she was on her deathbed, mm-hmm. right? And so, but but on its own, heroin withdrawal is not deadly. Um, but uh, alcohol and benzos can be, and unfortunately, the only way you can really know is, to be under the care of a doctor when it comes to alcohol and benzodiazepines, right? And right. Um, the real strong withdrawal 
uh, effects don't come in until the second or third day that you haven't been drinking. It's always probably safer to taper down. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of people try to quit cold turkey. They think mm-hmm. that they're okay the next day. It's like I'm in pain, but I'm doing it. I'm quitting. They don't realize maybe on the second or third day they might have a seizure. So that's why usually if you go to detox for alcohol, they're going to keep you for a minimum of three days to mm-hmm. find out if those really dangerous withdrawal effects emerge, right? And if they, then right. they find out, you know, based on blood pressure and different things, if they can let you go. But you could have a heart attack. There's all sorts of things that can happen from alcohol and benzoyl withdrawal. Not good. Um, is that is that what you wanted to know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I knew the answer, but I want the listeners to just hear it. Um, and I think the other thing I want to bring up, because there's so much, and I mean, I'm going to start to have, you know, either more experts or more authors like yourself on again, is the whole thing with opioids, right? So people take it for pain. Um, they have operations and they have it. And, but this is, uh, did you see The Pharmacist, the new um, four, four-part series on Netflix about the father? No, I almost... I almost watch it. His kid has a problem or something. Is that what happened? Yeah, it's really good. But it's really, I mean, he was murdered 20 years ago in the um, in the lower ninth ward of just like to the south of downtown New Orleans. The father's a pharmacist. The kid uh, starts to use um, and abuse these drugs and then gets killed. And then he becomes obsessed with finding the killer. It's incredible. And he taped everybody and they find this doctor um, who is giving out pills and making like a million and a half a year in cash. It's a wild story and about corruption with the police in New Orleans mm-hmm. who are actually guarding the place. I mean, you should watch it. But the thing is that bringing like the difference between the word heroin and, and opioids are these pills that so many people take and don't become addicted to at all. Right, so someone has knee surgery or back surgery or hip surgery, and they take it. And I knew that it's that you cannot die from the withdrawal because I actually sat with heroin addicts. I had this AA sponsor who worked with anybody and everybody. And back yeah. then, nobody took opioid pills because I don't know that they existed back then um, in that form. Right? They, you know, it's been around. Everyone's been around forever, but no opioid. There was, there was... Were they pills? In the 70s, um, people were take, doing heroin, okay, let's just say. They were shooting heroin. Yeah, and they were. She would – Mm-hmm. And I was with her as she would sit with people, and they would sweat, and they would, you know, bitch and moan, but they were not going to die. And all the real heavy, heavy drinkers – I notice I don't use the word alcoholic. <laughs> but those people who were and go, could have a seizure were going to this um, – detox clinic that was on the poly highway where they did real clinical medical detox for people that could be mm-hmm. three, five or seven days, depending on how much they drank. And so, yeah. um, yeah, I mean, I just, because the opioid pill thing is such been, it's such in the news that I just wanted to talk about it, that they act like people are, you know, Oh my God. And you have to like do it this way or that way. Hey. And that you're not, no, you're not, if you're a really healthy person and you, <laughs> Go ahead. You you answer it for me if you would please. If if you're what about it? Well, if somebody is using um, opioids yeah. in a non-abusive way, 
for yeah. for a health, you know, for back surgery or a hip surgery or knee surgery, and then is wants to stop using them. Like yeah. you're not even abusing well, them. You just, yeah, if they're not if they're not on a super high dose, you can usually just stop taking them. If you are in a very high dosage, then you could taper down. Um, the thing is that, and this has been recognized for a long time, is that people come out of the hospital after having been on a morphine drip for a few weeks and mm-hmm. having a constant supply of morphine, which is heroin. You know, the same, the, mm. these are the same things. There's slight chemical differences and mm. the same effects. And um, they come out because they don't think of themselves as addicts right. because they haven't been using the drug to cope with things or to be their only source of bright spot of feeling good in life and whatever, because they don't have a lot psychologically wrapped up in the drug. They're going to leave the hospital and go through withdrawal, and they're just going to kind of under, feel like they're sick. Like, well, I must still be recovering from surgery, right? Even though right. they've just been taking up a constant stream of morphine, they go home and they kind of think nothing of it. They're just sick. And um, this has been happening forever. And there's millions of people around the world that this happens to every year. And they don't run out and seek out more opioids. It's not just mm-hmm. the withdrawal alone. The withdrawal has to be paired with a belief with a psychology and a mindset that I can't withstand this withdrawal. I really need the drug for X, Y, and Z. You know, it has to be paired with all this other psychological stuff. The withdrawal alone feels like the flu. It's a very bad case of the flu, but if you didn't think of yourself as an addict, and I don't think you can just shut this on or off, but, you know, so... I get it if you're going through it and it's and it feels awful. Um, but if you didn't think of yourself as an addict, you would it would be just like the flu. That's that's right. all it would be, and that would not good. I had a very bad case of flu two years ago, and I remembered in the last I, was, I said, oh, this is what heroin, heroin withdrawal used to feel like. It's exactly like that. Well, but well, it's right, but it's you know, it's the flu, and we all know we're most of the time we're going to survive it, and we don't. We don't run out and do things. We just wait it out, right? Right. So the person could also just slowly reduce. If they take it two or three times a day, they could take it twice a day and then one a day for a week and then yeah. reduce. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I did. I had the. What? Oh my God! We're like ninety seconds out here. This is crazy. How fast this went. Well, maybe oh. we could do a part okay. two. We could do part I also two. I not being able to connect. So. <laughs> What's that? I also wasted two minutes not being able to connect to you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what happened there, but that's okay. I did finally see, I don't know if I could, um, in the future, like I called, the way I finally made it work is that there's a little phone in my system, and I called you. Now we can continue talking, oh, okay. and then people uh-huh. will not be able to hear it live, but it it does keep going. So why don't we talk for another five minutes? How about that? We'll talk for another five minutes and just finish up and then if we want to do another show um all right you know to make a part two uh what, what can we do this is I, I think policy oh oh i know what i want to say i'm going to write these two notes because maybe they could be the next time but um all right policy like say with nida and people who are very very brainwashed about what that a is the only way but 
I, I heard this interview about the L.A. mission um, on the radio, and the guy was saying how um, they now, if they get federal funds at these homeless shelters and stuff, that harm reduction... Uh, Okay, taking 10 seconds. So, listeners, if you're out there, it's going to drop, but you can re-listen to it when it gets loaded up and you can hear the rest of this. So let's keep going. Um, that harm reduction was now had to be part of the program. So they couldn't throw people out for just if they weren't abstinent, right? Is that a federal, that's a federal law if you get federal funds now. Did you know that? Wow. No, I didn't. Yeah, I, I didn't either. That's, and that's so, yeah, I thought it was great, and he was, you know, he he was a really nice guy, and you could tell he was an he was an AA guy, and I mean Clancy has died, thank God, so he's not down there in the mission anymore, um, so they can't be all like you know, um, dic- dic- dictator like, you know, this guy actually sounded like he really cared about people and wanted to help people, but um, with that, I was like, wow, that's kind of interesting, and yet, you know, when you when someone gets that. Uh, okay, you know, oh, you're going to go to jail or you're going to go to rehab. They are all based on abstinence, right? And so, how do we change that uh, that narrative and that policy? It's a policy, you know. Yeah, I Have thought about that or getting and become like one of those. What do you call them? <laughs> when you go to Washington and you're going to lobbyist a lobbyist. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've met a lobbyist a few years ago. That's funny. Um, Did you? Yeah. Uh, but no, I don't. I don't know how we change that. You know. Um, but I like. You know what Carl's saying right now. Carl Hart. He's going around. He's arguing against this sort of treatment instead of jail thing, because the way it's mm-hmm. being applied is anybody that we catch with drugs, they're an addict. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And yeah. send the treatment. Um, you know. So I, I think. What what Carl Hart is doing right now is, is just so incredibly important because he's saying, I am a person who has used heroin and other drugs moderately, and I have my life together. And um, we need to change the narrative on drugs. And uh, the pushback that he's getting on that right now is insane. Um, yep. but yeah, I saw that on Twitter. Yeah, that's so <laughs> radical, right? Yes. That's such a radical, radical thing. thing. Everybody's like, that's such a radical thing to say. <laughs> I have great respect for him for that. I just yeah, remember when I mentioned one time on, like, remember The Fix? Um, yeah. yeah. I mentioned something about moderate drinking on there, and someone was like, oh, so you're not clean and you're not sober and you're not, and like, I'm like, yeah, I, I drink sometimes, and, and, and like they thought they caught me in this big thing, and they were like, "Oh, like so you're a total fraud." And it's like, no, I'm, you know, like I I got over my heroin problem, right? I I right, can, right. and I and I like to drink, and it's people have to come out and sort of break the stereotypes. You know, and that's what he's trying to do, and that's what he's trying to encourage other people to do. And I think if we, if if we do that, you know, and more people who moderately use drugs talk about it openly instead of hiding it, and, and former formerly you know addicted or whatever people say, yeah, I 
I have a drink now and then, I smoke now and then, or even if they use the, the drug, you know, whatever, a very hard drug, like Carl is saying, you know, heroin. Okay, so be it. If people can come out and publicly say that, then we can know that there's an in-between. We can know that, um, that people who formerly had problems can get over those problems and um, use drugs, uh, including, you know, alcohol in a way that um, enhances their life and is not a problem. And, and so, so I think that's the most important thing culturally, and he's spearheading that. So that's, that's good. That's, that's what I like. As far as, like, policies and stuff, I have no idea. You know, like, I, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, well, you know, one of the things, because you have a talent in this, obviously you're a good writer because you you wrote this. I mean, they, you wrote it together, but you, I can tell that you're a writer, too, because you have your blog and um, The Clean Slate. Again, um, I'm talking to Stephen Slate, and uh, he is one of the authors of The Freedom Model for Addictions, Escape the Treatment, and Recovery Trap. Um, you can find uh, it on Amazon and any other platform. You can find the videos on Facebook the free the freedom model uh group or page and then also the freedom model has a youtube page and uh um oh damn oh yeah the talent about writing a screenplay so one of the ways that was a very pointed way that aa did it was through marketing and you know somebody who yeah. was specialized in marketing and that was marty mann and then she was the speaker and went around to all those um what are those groups the rotary you know, rotary um, groups. I mean, I actually saw them at a, we have like a, one of those kind of carnivals every year at uh, in Culver City, and it's really fun, and it was like the rotary group, and I was like, damn, this is like right out. This is Marty Mann. Maybe I should join the rotary group and infiltrate. And, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> maybe the next thing could be writing a screenplay, Stephen, and getting a film yeah. made, you know. I, um, write your story. idea for years. Yeah. Like and I keep write on it, writing write it. for it. <laughs> yeah, I know I got to write it. <laughs> Wr- write that one and uh I think that could get made and uh you have to infiltrate Hollywood and get a TV show. I mean, I I do believe there is a limited series that could be, you know, from I started making Rehab Riot this documentary that which should really was meant to be um, a series. It needs to be a series because it would be too long. And I did mm-hmm. want. I did want it more on streaming. And then the pandemic. Like I had filmed all that fall of 2019 with Becca, my producer, and got so much done so quickly. And then oh, that wow. happened. And I. And yeah. And I was just like, wow. And I wasn't finished. Like I would have. But you know what I mean. Like I just. I knew what not to do with like the 13 step. My experience with that. But. I do think that if you, you know, and and you have written this. Now I want to know more about it. Oh, Rehab Riot, it was a working title. Um, It was exposing rehab, you know, and what what are the newer solutions and exposing the body brokering and what they did in Florida. Why why aren't the laws passed here to keep people safe um, that nobody seems to respect, you know, these other places, these like promise, not promises. I'm sorry, passages. Um, and, you know, passages has a what I call a middle class rehab. <laughs> you know, everybody thinks passages in Malibu that will be seventy five thousand, whatever. Well, no, they have actually a middle class, um, really cool rehab that's out in Oxnard or Ventura, 
you have yours, you know, placed out there, right? Um, yeah. Freedom Model, it's in upstate New York. And there are a few others. And we interviewed, actually, a guy who was building an entire place in, uh, did I go to Miami? I think it was in Miami we filmed him. West Palm Beach? No, it was in Miami. We interviewed the DA in uh, West Palm Beach who really, oh, like, wow. locked down on all that body brokering. And, you know, it was amazing interviews. We I even, even went to a place that they did real clinical detox, and many of them were um, mixed AA or 12-step people, but they didn't pound it, and they didn't, like, shove it down their throat. They really wanted to help people detox off of alcohol or drugs, whatever it was, and then you could just leave and go wherever you want or whatever. But it wasn't like, oh, now you need to go to a 30-day program. Oh, now you need to live in sober living for six months, and can you pay 6000 yeah. a month or whatever, you know? Yeah. So, um but I think let's let's do a number two. I mean, I I have um you know now on my list. I I don't. I think maybe uh, Carl Hart is doing interviews again. I had interviewed him years ago, and I didn't read his new book yet. But I mean, even oh, somebody like yeah. Oh, I yeah, I gotta get it. Yeah, I gotta get it. Yeah. Well, I've been talking to Stephen Slate. I want to thank you, Stephen, for um, being on the show tonight and. Um, it's that uh, you Thank were somebody you. who really helped me when I left, and uh, I, you know, got to meet you in person in New York, and I just feel I so miss normalized. Being you. I, yeah, I miss you. Yeah, no, well, maybe <laughs> come out. San Diego is better I, than L.A. <laughs> that's where you live, is San Diego? No, no, I live in L.A. still, but we've been going down there, you know, a lot, and it's it just you know when outdoor dining opened, they're like ah, you know, it just feels so much better. The hotels are <laughs> opened and more opened, and you know we're talking about like oh, yeah. another state, right? The two of us are in these um, these strange states, but um, at least some of the other got, states are opening. I got a Go friend who lives in Burbank, so maybe I can come out. I would love to see you again. Um, come come thank out, you for having come me. out. Yes, yes, okay, great having you on the show again. This is Stephen Slate. I'm Monica Richardson, Blog Talk Radio Safe Recovery. And we'll see you again soon. Thanks, Stephen. Take care. Thanks, Monica. You too. Bye. Good night. Good night.